Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, you sound really, really good this morning. I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into Esther chapter 9. Would you join me? God in heaven, we thank you for the gathered congregation lifting our voices as one to our one and only Savior. God, we thank you for one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one voice resonating throughout this room and God resonating in our hearts as we are reminded, as we need to be reminded today of your faithfulness. God, we live in a fickle and fallen world and there are many things that compete for our attention and for our affection, but there is only one God who saves and one God who never disappoints and he is you, the the true and living God who came on a rescue mission and came down to cleanse us by bearing our sins on the cross and conquering death on the third day and reversing the edict of death that was set against us. And so, Lord, we pray as we turn our attention to Esther chapter 9 that you would remind us of of who we are as those that belong to Christ and the battle that you've called us to, to be a part of. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Esther chapter 9, we'll consider verses 1 through 16 today. Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 16. And as you're turning there, I want to set the stage. We've arrived at the day of conclusion. There are two rival and irrevocable edicts that will be resolved on the same day, the 13th of Adar. One edict calls for the destruction of the Jewish people throughout the entire Persian Empire, which would have effectively been the destruction of all Jewish people on the planet. And the the other edict calls for Jews to proactively defend themselves against their enemies. And the question is, which decree will prevail? Will the, the people of God throughout the Persian Empire be exterminated, eliminated? Uh, will God's promise to send His Son through the Jews be sacked? Or will the Jews survive and a Savior come? This is the question that we have arrived at in Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Would you hear with me the Word of God? We'll read down through verse 16. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful 
the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashtatha. No, Parmashta and Arasai and Aradai and Vizatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. I'd like a round of applause, please. I practiced that a lot. Verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. What in the world can we, can we learn today? Can we take from this these 16 verses today, I have several things I want to share with you. There, there is a day that, that our lives turns turn, and it's, it's the day uh, of the cross. There were two edicts that, that collide in the cross, the edict of life and death. And Jesus came to die so that, that we might live. And if you trust in Christ, and that is true of your life, then you've been enlisted in a battle. And we see some principles here in Esther chapter 9 that are very applicable to our Christian life today as those who had that edict of death reversed through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So today we're going to consider the day that things turned around, the day that the edicts turned. And the first thing I want to show you is that on this day that the edicts collide, those who side with the Lord are given victory over their enemies. It's, it's easy for us to look at this and say the Jews won, but ultimately it's God who is winning. The reason the Jews win is because God is purposing to bring His Son and Savior through the Jews. And so we've got to be on the side of the Lord on the day that the edicts of life and death collide. The book of Esther spans ten chapters, but the story is really over in verse 1 of chapter 9. The 13th of Adar has arrived. The rival edicts clash. And we learn in verse 1, on the very day the enemies of God's people wanted to gain mastery over them or to overpower them. Instead, God's people gained mastery over their enemies. And between these two little phrases, we, we learn that it was reversed. It's in the passive voice. Somehow, 
What seemed like it was going to happen didn't happen. In fact, the exact opposite happened. It looked like the Jews would die and that they would, be, they would fall at the hands of their enemies and instead their enemies fell at their hands. The New American Standard puts that little phrase this way. It was turned to the contrary. We see a foreshadowing of what would happen in the life of Jesus. Do you remember when Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus? And Satan thought he was getting the upper hand. Little did he know he was just being a part of God's plan. That as he entered Judas, who would betray Jesus to the cross, and that he would be crucified, that he would be crucified for the sins of sinners. That on the third day, he might emerge from the grave and save them. So, so Haman, unwittingly, is, is a, now a part of a plan that reflects for us the ultimate rescue that comes through Jesus. It is the Lord though unmentioned, who is reversing the destiny of his people. Whether they realized it or not, the, the Jews were not fighting for victory in the battles that we just saw described. They were fighting from victory. Because in verse 1, before they ever went to battle, verse 1 tells us that it was turned to the contrary. The Lord was working to turn things around. And I want to tell you today, if you know Christ by faith, if you belong to Him by faith, you have been enlisted in a battle that is already won. If you know Jesus, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, the victory is yours. And you don't fight for victory, but from victory. Because the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus puts an end to the war. It will be ended when He returns. And yet, from this day until that glorious day, or until He calls you home, you've been called to do battle. Which is what we see in verses 2-16. through 16. While the victory is assured because the Lord turns it, they still go to war. And what we learn, secondly, is that while the Lord gives the victory, He includes His gathered people in the battle. Did you know, if you know Jesus, that you're, at, you're in a battle? You're a soldier of Christ. There's that old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. I, I lament sometimes that we've forgotten that we are at war, that we're in a battle. Too often we think of church as a cruise ship. It's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. In verse 2, we see that the enemies of God and His people were in every province, and the Jews were gathered and prepared to kill their enemies. For the people of God, the enemies were everywhere. And the parallel, parallel to our life today is to recognize that this side of life everlasting in God's new creation, you will face enemies in every place you go. You will face enemies in your marriage. You will face enemies in your parenting. You will face enemies in your workplace. You will face enemies even in the church. It's what, it's what the Apostle Paul says in, in Acts chapter 20. He says that pastors have been given to the church for, for many reasons, and one of them is because wolves will try to come in from outside, and wolves will grow up from within. And the pastors need to be on guard for anyone who would want to sack the gospel or undermine the gospel or make the mission of God about something other than the gospel. Now, we recognize that ultimately our enemies are not people, right? Uh, the enemy wants to use people, but our enemies are not flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our enemies are the, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic 
powers, these unseen forces of the present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies are sin and death and these enemies want to upend our faith and lead us to be apathetic about others who need to know the love of God available to them in Christ. You know, in these verses, verses 1 through 16, I am struck by the unifying power of a common enemy. The Jews are not in Jerusalem, most of them. They are far from the, the, the plan of God, and they seem to be at ease. They seem to be pretty apathetic until suddenly they're woken up by a decree of death. I mean, Mordecai and Esther are just hanging out in a pagan land under pagan rule, and there's nothing uniquely identifying about their lives as the people of God, and then the the story unfolds and suddenly they're confronted with a decree of death and people are commissioned to kill them and suddenly they've woken up. On September the 10th, 2001, my sister celebrated her 18th birthday. And President Bush had an approval rating of approximately 51%. You know the, the one I'm talking about, right? W. Good old W. I always love calling him W. Uh, he's the only president I ever met. Ran him right here in Roanoke when he, when he came to Roanoke uh, before his first run for president. But on September the 10th, 2001, my sister turned 18 and W had an approval rating of 51%. But by September the 13th of the same year, his approval rating was 90%. Three days later, a president who had a 51% approval rating had the highest recorded approval rating of any president in modern history. What changed? You know what changed. The World Trade Center towers came falling down. The Pentagon had a plane fly into it and another plane went down in a field in Pennsylvania. And President George W. Bush, who was lampooned by many, went to New York City and grabbed a megaphone behind a, beside a pile of rubble and he said... These towers may have come down, but the people who did this will be hearing from us very soon. You can hear the speech in your ears right now. In a moment, our country recognized we had a common enemy, and suddenly our country was united in fighting the war on terror. Let me ask you a question. How much more important is the battle that we've been called to? The battle for the hearts and minds of sinners. The battle to eradicate sin from our lives and our homes. How much more ought we be united in our pursuit of our mission rather than segmented and divided into our little subgroups rather than being together and on mission and in worship united in the one battle that God has entrusted to us. Not just for big events. Oh, let's get together at VBS and be united for a minute. Oh, let's get together at Windshape and be united for a minute. No, we are supposed to be united right here in this moment on the Lord's Day for the glory of our conquering King who's deploying us week by week on mission in His battle. It's biblical. The church that looks back to the reversal that Jesus secured at the cross and ahead to the day of His return will be together fighting our common enemy rather than fighting ourselves. The church is not a cruise ship with a buffet of options to satisfy our every desire. It just isn't. 
It is an aircraft carrier designed to take the battle into new territory for the glory of Christ. And he is our commander in chief. And he's given us our marching orders. If you know Jesus, he's put you in a battle. He's given you a team with whom to go to war. And as we engage this battle, the third principle we see is we engage the battle with confidence in our king. In verses 3 and 4, we read that all the officials in Persia sided with the Jews because they feared Mordecai. Mordecai is is showing us, uh, in a small way, what Christ will be like in a much greater way. He was 24 hours from hanging on Haman's gallows, and now he has power and fame that is second only to that of the king. And if the officials of the kingdom value their lives, they better honor Mordecai because they report to Mordecai. Now, I don't know if you remember Haman's edict back, to, back in chapter 8, but it, it kept, excuse me, not in chapter 8, chapter 3, but, but the edict calls for the enemies of the people of God to use the resources of the kingdom to attack the Jews. But instead, the officials deny that portion of the edict, and use the resources of the empire to defend or to help the Jews. Mordecai's rise, they, they fear Mordecai. His rise foreshadows the reversal that would come to us through Jesus. Jesus didn't just almost hang on a tree. He did hang on a tree. And on the third day, he conquered the grave, which means he's not second in command. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He has poured out His Spirit on those who trust in Him to go with them as they share the gospel to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment, conquering the forces of darkness and leading some to bow their knee to the King before it is too late. Paul says those who belong to Jesus are in a battle that they will win. In fact, we are winning right now. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. He goes on to say, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, when you share the gospel and someone doesn't repent and believe, that's not on you. God is doing His work. Either saving Or they are condemned for their unbelief. And either way, it will be demonstrated that Christ is King. We are to one a fragrance from death to death. And to the other a fragrance from life to life. We go forward sharing the gospel with confidence that our King is winning His people. And it will be proven in the last day when He returns. Number four, we see in this text that we must not accept compromises or truces with the enemy. We see this in verses 5 through 16. In verse 5, we, we learn that the victory of the Jews is total. Do you see that in verse 5? They destroyed all their enemies with the sword. Not some of their enemies, not half their enemies, not 75% of their enemies. They destroyed all their enemies. God wants all of you. When you trust Jesus and you give Him your life, He wants all of you. He wants your attitudes, your behavior, your marriage. He wants your parenting. He wants your work life. He wants your church life. He wants every aspect of who you are. He doesn't want you to have these little places in your heart where you say, well, it's okay if this area of my life is not under the Lordship of Christ. He wants it all. 
Are our lives proving the sin-conquering power of the cross? You see, if, if you really are united with Jesus by faith, who died on the cross to conquer sin, then it's going to show up in your life. It's going to show up in your attitude about the enemies that want to sack your life. We need to remember this as we go to war against sin in our own lives. We need to remember it as we pray for and share the gospel with the lost. We can't dumb down the message that God is holy and righteous with the hopes that people will trust in Jesus, but they'll miss the point because they didn't even realize that the Lord is holy and that He intends for us to be holy as He is holy. The descriptions of war in the Old Testament are often misunderstood. God's, God's people did not go to war because they were great or deserving, but because an attack on God's people was considered an attack on God and His mission in the world. This is why the victories of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament are often total and without mercy. The Jews were prosecuting as strain rights the judicial decree of God in His wrath upon His enemies. It is a graphic picture of a deeper conflict that has raged since Genesis 3.15, when God declared that the seed born of woman and the seed of the serpent would live in enmity one with the other until one would come and crush the serpent's head. In other words, the war that the Jews fought was total because it was totally about God. Dowden adds this, Though the Jews had every right to annihilate anyone who attacked regardless of gender or age, we do not see in Esther 9 any record of instances of women and children being killed other than Haman's grown sons. However, listen to this. If women and children were killed, we're talking about holy war in the Old Testament, all right? If women and children were killed, listen to this, it serves as a reminder of the consequences of poor male headship in the home. May we never lead our families to fight against God. The people of Persia didn't have to fight against the people of God. They had the opportunity to join the people of God. He says, may we never lead our families to fight against God, and may we who are husbands and fathers, and I would no doubt say mothers and wives, always remember our rebellion against God produces painful consequences for our families. Do you believe that? We are individually accountable to God, but how we shepherd our family impacts our children. We are accountable to God individually, but our children need to see us living for God in our home, loving God in our home, making the things of God our primary priority. Because if they don't see that in our lives... They will go the way of the world and they will fight the purposes and the plan of God and they will justly be condemned in the last day. We need to parent and grandparent and great-grandparent very, very well for the glory of God. Speaking of the impact of fathers on their families, the consequences for Haman's sons are clear. And I'm going to call on Paul to read those names for us real quickly. All ten of them are named, and they're named individually, and the author names every single one to stress to us 
every single one of these guys who had every opportunity to realize what was happening with the people of God, they still stuck with their father Haman, the father who had been under the influence of Satan, the father of lies. They had, they had months to discern that the Lord was raising up Mordecai and Esther to defend his people. They had months to realize their father was wrong to oppose the Jewish people through whom God would send a Savior. Their own mother predicted that Haman would fall before the seed of the Jews. They had plenty of information to make a different decision. And I want you to understand this, church. Their problem was not a lack of information. The problem was their desperately wicked hearts. Why do we pray for lost people? If it's, if it's just simply giving them the information of the gospel, then why would we even need to pray? We just write them a letter. Give them the Bible and say, read it, study it, figure it out. The reason we pray for lost people is because it takes more than right information to open someone's heart to trust in Jesus. It takes a move of God. They refuse to accept defeat and join God's people because their hearts were far from God. And all the information around them did not, was not enough for them to, to change sides and accept defeat before it was too late. So... They met the same fate as their father Haman, which reminds us of what will happen when Jesus returns and he comes to vanquish the enemies of God and they will join their spiritual father Satan forever, doomed and separated from the love of God. But the Lord at the same time will vindicate those who trust in him. The edicts of life and death have been turned. The edict of death against us has been turned, but it's only been turned in submission to Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you are trying to get to God on your own, if you're trying to, to live for your own fame or your own power, or your own wealth or your own glory, I want to encourage you to learn the lesson of Haman's sons and die to yourself and come alive to the purpose of, purposes of God before it is too late. Join the battle for holiness. Surrender to Christ the King. Fifthly, as you join the battle, I want to encourage you to engage the battle until the mission is complete. We see this in verses 5 and 11 through 14. We saw in verse 5 that they destroyed all their enemies. And in verse 11 through 14, King Ahasuerus gets a report about the events that are in Susa. He hears about the 500 who have died just in Susa. And he's impressed and he asks Esther, he goes, well, what else do you want? I mean, if 500 are died, have died, and maybe, maybe there's something else you would want. Now, this is interesting to me, right? Because Esther has spent the middle of this story trying to get her way with the king. She's, she's risked her life twice to be able to make any request to the king. And now that the king sees what is happening to the enemies of the Jews, he's like, hey, is there anything else you'd like? Because uh, I, I'd rather not get killed. I mean... I know you're my queen and all, but your God's pretty impressive. You want anything else? And Esther shocks us. She says, as a matter of fact, I do. I want to do this all over again tomorrow. You say, man, that sounds brutal. That sounds tough. Did you know that's how we're supposed to be with sin in our lives? 
His mercies are new every morning, but we're supposed to wake up every day and go to, go to war for holiness in our life, for the glory of King Jesus. Every day, God is putting people in our path who are lost and without hope because they're without faith in Christ. And He's sending you to them with the hope and the message of the gospel. She wants the sons of Haman killed, and she wants them not just killed, but hung on the gallows. She wants them to bear their shame. She wants them to be humiliated for their attack on the things of God. May God give us that sort of attitude of Esther. The things in my life, the pride, the the selfishness, the greed, the lust, whatever it is that's in my heart that is opposed to God. May God give me the spirit of Esther that says, I will not relent until the enemy is dead and ashamed and embarrassed for how it is attacking a holy God and attacking my walk and my life in Christ. Last week, Ethan told us that God plays for keeps and so should we. God is a jealous God. And He wants all that we have and all that we are consecrated to Him and His mission. Too often, church, we settle for compromising with our sin when God tells us to kill it. So many of us, if King Ahasuerus would have come to us and said, Do you want anything else? We would have looked around and said, It looks pretty good. I'm all right, But instead, Esther said, as long as any enemies of the purposes and plan of God remain, I want to be at war. God, help us to have a warlike mentality until He comes. Too often we see change or adversity as a reason to find another cruise ship rather than an opportunity to do whatever it takes to take the battle to the enemy right where God has placed us. Too often we settle for knowing that our lost neighbor is nice when we know that their niceness will not be nearly enough when they stand before King Jesus on the day of judgment. Why won't we open our mouths and go to battle for the hearts and minds of sinners far from God? The resurrection of Jesus proves that God has turned the tide and He is deploying His church in the war against his enemies. We therefore must waste no time in going to war against the sin in our lives and the death that is coming to the world. And we do it not with a physical sword, but with the sword of God's word, which Hebrews 4.12 says is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. Esther had already gained the upper hand But she knew that enemies remained, and so she kept battling. May we, like Esther, by way of the Spirit of God, let God search us and sift us and keep on deploying us against anything that threatens our lives and which is not aligned with Christ's character and His calling upon His church, who has been bought and purchased and ransomed by His precious blood. And finally, as we battle... As those who have trusted in Christ and obtained victory and now been commissioned in his battle, may we remember finally and may we remember finally that the battle is for the glory of Christ. The battle is ultimately for the glory of Christ. There is so much in these 16 verses that impresses us, right? The all the officials in the empire side with the Jews. 
Mordecai's fame and power continue to rise. All ten of Haman's sons are killed and hung. The king, after Esther had to risk her life twice, twice in making a request, now asks Esther if she has any more, more requests. And nearly 76,000 are destroyed because they hated the Jews, the people through whom God would bring a Savior to the world. These are amazing details of reversal. And yet for all these details... The detail that's mentioned three times in verse 10 and 15 and 16, three times in five verses, shouting at us that it's significant is this. Did you see it? The Jews laid no hands on the plunder. Even though Mordecai's edict in chapter 8 verse 11 specifically gave them permission to take the plunder from their enemies, none of them did. This is a hugely significant detail in the text. Though plundering the enemy in warfare was normal, the Israelites refrained from enriching themselves. Why? Why didn't they take some stuff? Get a little booty. Why did they do it? Why did they fight and win and take nothing? They did it to demonstrate that their victory was from the Lord and for the Lord. And that in belonging to the Lord, they had all they needed. They had no reason or need to spike the football because it was victory enough to belong to the Lord and be on His team. We see this principle going all the way back to Genesis. Do you remember when Abram conquered the king of Sodom and rescued Lot, and then Sodom comes to him later, and Abraham's like, hey, here's all your stuff, by the way. I was just getting Lot back. And the king of Sodom's like, no, you beat me. To the victor belong the spoils. And Abram's like, nope, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. We do not enrich ourselves We have Jesus who is our true riches. We do not battle to get stuff. We battle because we have all that we need in Christ and nothing compares to the treasure that we have in Him. Do you believe that this morning? When you go to war against sin and death and share the gospel, that you're not doing it primarily for you, you're doing it for the glory of Christ the King. God, if I get nothing out of this other than that Jesus Christ is glorified, I will be satisfied. Can you say that in your marriage? Can you say that in your parenting, in your work, in your sharing of the gospel, in your pursuit of an uprooting of sin in your life, that Jesus, this is for your glory. Because belonging to you and knowing you and having life in you is treasure enough. Do you believe that this morning? Does your living prove it? Does your giving prove it? Does your serving prove it? We need helpers for Vacation Bible School this summer. We need some people who say, I will take, a, take some time in the evening. You don't even have to take a week off. You just got to scurry over here after work. We need some folks to get plugged into VBS and to, to serve like crazy for a week. And to see what God might do in the hearts and minds of kids and maybe even of their parents or their grandparents or their guardians who bring them to North Roanoke Baptist Church to encounter the love of God in Christ. We we need to see this principle lived out in our lives. Does your checkbook say that you're not laying hands on the plunder? 
Does your calendar say that you're not laying hands on the plunder? Does the way you respond to your wife or your husband in a moment of adversity say that you're not laying hands on the plunder? Does your service say you're not laying hands on the plunder? Or does it really say, this battle is kind of about me and my preferences and what I want and what fits my timeline and my schedule just so? When the people of God entered Jericho, God had commanded them not to take any plunder. And there was a man named Achan who thought he could just be along for the ride. Be present for the battle, but not really going to war for the purposes of God. And they had been commanded not to take plunder, but Achan did. And you remember what happened, right? The Israelites lost the next battle because God was not surprised. And it's found out. Achan's sin is found out. And he says right before the people of God stoned him, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them and see they are hidden in the earth beneath my tent, inside the tent rather, with the silver underneath. Church, Achan was present for the battle, but he was there for himself. And the reality is, churches today are filled with people who are present, but not really present. They're there, but they're not really warring for the King of Glory. And on Judgment Day, all the pretending will be exposed for what it is, and it will be judged. Because the reality is, church, joining in the battle for the glory of Christ will cost you in this lifetime. It will cost you in time. It will cost you in finances, in resources, in service, in reputation, in emotional turmoil. It will cost you in all kinds of ways. But it is really, at the end of the day, no cost because whatever price we pay to magnify Jesus and conquer sin in our lives and see His enemies become His friends through the sharing of the gospel is nothing compared to having and knowing Christ. And somebody should say amen. Do we believe that? Do we believe that having Christ means we have everything? If you've got Jesus plus something, you've got nothing. If you've got, if you've got everything in the world, but no, Jesus, you have nothing. But if you have Jesus, you have all that you need. Church, we should have faced the fate of Haman's sons. We were the ones who deserved to hang on the tree. But the Son of God came and faced the tree for us so that we could have life and life in Him forevermore. Jesus is our reward and our portion. So as we engage this battle, may we magnify our King who became poor so that by His poverty we can have a full share in His riches. May we not be fearful to enter the battle for the glory of Christ, armed with prayer and the word, knowing the Lord has turned the tide. He has given us His Spirit, a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind, 2 Timothy 1.7. And as we battle against sin and for the hearts of sinners who are still far from God, may we remember these things. The Lord gives victory through the cross of Christ. The Lord includes those who trust in Jesus in the battle. Are you in the battle today? We can engage in the battle with confidence because it is a battle for King Jesus who wins. We must not compromise with the enemy 
and accept that nice will be good enough on the day of judgment or that we can have our little pet sins and not really worry about them. We must engage the battle until the mission is complete. And finally, church, we must remember the battle is ultimately for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for Esther. We thank you that she was not content until all the enemies of God were vanquished. And we pray, God, that you would give us that spirit today. Lord, that whatever sin in our life that we walked into in this room, that we were accommodating or coddling or neglecting, God, that you would remind us that you have given us the Holy Spirit to go to work against those things. God, that you would purify us in the hearing of your word and set us apart to be more like Jesus And God, if there's anyone in this room who has never looked to the cross of Christ and recognized that they should have been the one to hang there, but instead Jesus took their sin to reverse the edict of death and to give them life everlasting. God, if there's someone here today who's never trusted in Christ and found life and known the joy of engaging in this battle, God, I pray they would come and trust you today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.